Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A note of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. So welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast, The Web Extra. And we're here with Amaryllis Fox. Thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So you just wrote this book, and uh, it's called Life Undercover. Tell us what it's about. Well, it's really a personal coming-of-age story, but I happen to come of age not only against the backdrop of the war on terror, but while undercover working counterterrorism for CIA overseas um, and got married and had my daughter while I was doing that work. And so, you know, in some ways it's uh, it's a story of figuring out who I was and what my work was in the world in the way that every 20 something year old does. Um, And and then at a at a kind of more macro level, it's the story of the war on terror through the eyes of the 20 somethings who were who were fighting it at the agency and i think sometimes we forget how young the intelligence and military officers who are tasked with this work are especially in the intelligence world the longer that you're out working the more your cover gets eroded so the the kind of counterintuitive thing I, do you mind explaining that sure so you know, I remember a teacher saying to me d- during training, you can do an entire career sitting in your closet overseas and not do any work and your cover will be pristine. Nobody will suspect that you work at CIA or that you're involved in, in the intelligence world, but you also won't have done anything useful. You know, so every time you embark on an operation, you develop a source, you do something to try to predict or prevent an act of war, an act of terrorism, the the chance of the people around you getting some sense of what you do increases so that eventually after several tours, most people end up either being declared to the country that they're working in or coming back and working at headquarters, taking on a management role. So it's really the first tour officers, the youngest people whose cover is pristine because Mm -hmm. they haven't been out working that are often tasked with um, work that that requires that that level of secrecy. And so this is this is the story of um, the development in many ways of my sort of perspective on the war on terror. I did not start out with a view to peacemaking or finding common ground. I'd, I'd lost a friend to terrorism in third grade. Um, uh, my writing hero, Danny Pearl, was killed after 9-11. I had really... Um, been shaken by what was happening to the world and started out wanting to wipe the adversary off the playing mm-hmm. field. Um, and I just learned interaction after interaction over the course of almost a decade that that just doesn't work. I mean, it's not only not a very fulfilling way to live, but you risk creating more, more adversaries more, yeah. than you destroy. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, you know, the book is is that evolution, but in a very personal sense. I think a lot of people who read it feel like they've had many of the same experiences, just not working just at, not the working agency. at the agency. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you have the, the inside jacket blurbs. And I just want to read, um, you know, that tries to get somebody that is in a bookstore as they pick this up and they go through it. All right. Well, what's this book about? And this is the hook. As the book opens, Amaryllis is alone navigating the back alleys of Karachi as she prepares to negotiate with terrorists. To, to avoid deployment of a nuclear device. And it's like, already you've blown every other, no pun intended, every other book that's next to you out of the water. How the reader wonders, did she come to be here in a dark room in Pakistan surrounded by men who could just as easily kill her as cooperate with her requests? So that's pretty, pretty awesome right there. And you don't get... You don't get you. The stakes don't get much higher than that. The thing is, this work happens around the world every day with intelligence officers, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what we forget. And the other thing that we forget is that in every one of those meetings, the stakes are potentially enormous in the way that you can tell from from that blurb. They're also potentially not high at all in that so many of the threats that get reported turn out to either not be real or involve um, a scam where the arms dealer was actually just selling dud goods for, you know, for his own enrichment or the technology is too old to work or the terror group doesn't have the right technologists on on their team to actually know how to make it work. So in many cases, the threat that's reported feels like it would be an end of the world. And the only time that we know really the outcome of one of these operations is when it fails because right. the attack happens, right? But we can never really say they're successful. I mean, even that example in the book, you know, you you get to the point where the thing doesn't go boom, but it could have been for any of those reasons I just said. It could have been a false threat to begin with just or some disinformation. You know, yeah. disinformation, poor technology, or a new target can be acquired. Uh, the attack can be delayed for some strategic or kind of logistical reason. So you can never really say like, great job done, you know, crisis averted. Does it, how do you get a sense of of fulfillment or satisfaction then when you know that you're kind of digging a hole in the sand? I, I don't know that there's a lot of sense of satisfaction mm. that's associated with this kind of work. Um, it It's more uh, the the fear of not doing it, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the notion, the especially once you have a little little person, once I had my daughter, who's this kind of tiny embodiment of every risk and every hope for the, for the future and tomorrow, and also the, the mothers and the babies on all sides of the conflict, not just ours. So you, it, it's more not being able to step back from the chance to make some small inroads, even if you're never going to know whether the sand has fallen in on them. And I remember actually when I left, um, my head of mentor there saying, you know, you did great, but don't worry. This place is like a swimming pool. When people leave, the water fills in behind them and no one ever even remembers they're here. You know, and it's this notion of service that's handed from one person to the next so that no person is is indispensable. Right. It's it's. I don't want to use the word thankless, but yes, you've just... Uh, you've just saved this thing or, or prevented a thing or given, gotten some great intelligence for a thing, but there's always, there's always the next thing. Yeah, so that's it's a, like, yeah. you know, that's, that's the dedication. I mean, that's, a, that that's a question that I got on my tour every day was, uh, you know, how are you, you know, you know, does it, does, is it satisfying or how do you get satisfied? And you can't because there's this, for me, there's so many other murders that are out there. There's 5,000 unsolved murders every year, you know, and after I, 
worked and, and solved, you know, my half a dozen plus, you know, helped solve another four more. So I helped do 10 and then, Just you know, Golden, Golden State there. Killer was 13. So that was seriously. And I, I, after Golden State Killer, I was like, wow. And then after my, it was like, wow, we got 23. And then I'm just such a numbers guy just from having grown up, like, collecting baseball cards and stuff. It's like, that's 23 versus 220,000. Yeah, yeah. If not you, you know, somebody's yeah. got to do it. Uh, so there's that dedication. It does, obviously, self-select for that. Um, what it's do you day do? by day, one by yeah. one. Well, the other question I always get, right. which I'd like to ask you, is that when, when you were undercover, what did you do to relax? <laughs> like, what did you do to unplug? Well, I mean, the challenge, especially when you're overseas, is that it's really a 24-7 reality, and it's a little bit of a kind of um, nesting doll in that, you know, different people at different levels in your life have sort of some glimpse of the truth or no glimpse of the truth. And so that matrix is kind of there all the time. So even when you are relaxing, you're you're relaxing within something of a Truman Show, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's what makes now in post-service life – these little tiny moments I just treasure so much. I have a tattoo on the inside of my wrist that says this too shall pass, which I think most people kind of say to you when something really bad is happening. And for me, I have it there because in these quiet moments when I'm reading to my daughters, you know, life goes so quickly and these, these beautiful glimpses of just being still and being fulfilled and having such a wonderful family now and, and being able to enjoy it. I think I I maybe wouldn't appreciate quite so much if I hadn't had those years of, of not having a lot of opportunity to relax. So were you able to go to say, I mean, you're in your twenties and when you look at everybody else that's in their twenties that, that potentially would have been your uh, counterparts were, Going to bars, going to clubs. Oh, totally. I remember going to a music festival for the first time in like maybe like 30, 31 years old and just being like, this is what you guys have all been doing? (laughs) (laughs) What was I thinking? (laughs) Um, But it, it, it was... It was really nice to get to just deeply appreciate every one of those experiences in a way that, you know, I probably wouldn't have if I had just kind of launched straight from school into them. And uh, to be able to take the tools that I had learned in my 20s for this very specific purpose and then use them in different ways. Like Mm -hmm. that's a lot of what I do now is kind of sharing these tools of how to listen to people who disagree with us, maybe even want to kill us, which seems to be increasingly prevalent even here in our politics at home Mm -hmm. um, and, and really create dialogue with the people that we fear and getting to do that now um, kind of feels worth, worth those years sacrificed in, mm-hmm. in my 20s. To, to kind of reflect on what you were saying a little bit, as far as, um, obviously, you can't talk too many, any operational details about what you were doing and where you were and things like that, but uh, the counterpoint of the 25-year-old who's not an agent and who's going to music festivals and bars and whatever else, but you're 25 and you're in, say, Pakistan or you're in uh, Bulgaria or whatever the case might be, you still have to fit in with other 25-year-olds there. I'm a visiting student. I'm whatever I am, I'm at whatever the case may be. Your targets not, aren't necessarily always going to be 25-year-olds unless, you know, this person works at that radio station or whatever. But So some of these things are like you have to still be able to get drunk like a 25-year-old back home, but you also have to keep your head on straight and be very directed on it. I mean, that, that's got to be exhausting. Um, it's definitely, I mean, definitely ordering drinks and then not having alcohol in yours is kind of par for the course, right? Where you allow people around right? you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's sensible, even if you're in an important business meeting. But doesn't that raise a word, like if the bartender there 
So are you basically a teetotaler? You're saying, you know, I'm a... a yeah, you know, I, I, you grab a, a some kind of a, a club soda that can look like a gin and tonic. Club soda know, with lime yeah. and a swizzle stick. Um, but there are times where, you know, you're you're having drinks right alongside them. One of the areas that I never, like, envied were the folks that worked in, in more Latin America type areas because... Drinking you know, culture. It's it's a, not only a drinking culture, but, but in many of the the groups that needed to be penetrated, they're also a heavy drug, drug culture. Drug culture, yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, so you, you know, got to be able to... Well, it's just like, like if you were stationed, say, in Russia... And then it's like, all right, we're drinking vodka, yeah. shots, you whatever. You it's just like, how do you right, fake that? You can't pouring for you. No, I mean, it's it's an immersive job in many ways. I think luckily working in the Middle East, there's, I mean, there is definitely plenty of drinking in the Middle East under the table. But um, but for the most part, it is, you know, obviously less of a drinking culture. Right, right, right. And along with that, particularly in the Middle East, uh, that's brings up some issues. But in general... And I'm sure that you, I haven't had a chance to read this yet, but uh, I'm sure some of this is addressed. You, there's sort of the history of the CIA goes back to World War II. And then after the World War, after World War II is the Cold War. And you've got kind of Ivy League guys that uh, they selected from Yale and Harvard yeah, the and, best and, and the brightest and, and in that Oxford, era, right? uh, yeah. when they're go when they're going over to Britain. But yeah, the best and the brightest, you think of Kennedy years and things like that, but very much uh, a Tweedy, uh, Blue blood, East Coast, uh, you know, someone who might be wealthy, speaks a couple of languages, that kind of thing. Um, different type of training, different type of demographic versus now. So, a we'll get into the female thing, but also after nine eleven, the technology thing. You know, it's much more of a militarization of the CIA and, and kill teams and things like that. Plus, signals intelligence and less emphasis yeah. on the human intelligence. This is all open source stuff that I've read in the news. Yeah, you can speak to it. But uh, then on top of that, you're, for instance, you had a kid while you were basically in the field. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So that's. Brave New World stuff. I, it, one of the real challenges is that legacy of kind of rich white dudes mm -hmm. doing this work. And, you know, there are some rich white dudes who, you know, probably despite that rather than because of it are, are good at their sure. job. Um, but the the need for more women, more people of color, people from diverse backgrounds to join this world or be of service in one of many different ways. This is this is not the only mm -hmm. national security role that desperately needs people from diverse backgrounds. And I think in part because we don't see those those um, archetypes on the Hollywood screen, mm -hmm. young people don't think of this as yeah. a calling for them. But, you know, the the emotional complexity of this work of relationship building mm -hmm. actually lends itself terribly well to, to feminine approaches to problem solving, you mm -hmm. know, emotional no, intelligence, yeah. intuition, yeah. You know, multitasking. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're not, not everything is a nail. Yeah. You know? And, uh, there's that great scene in Charlie Wilson's war where, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just like, remember that when, we're, when he breaks the window on John uh, yeah. Slattery and he's just like, yeah, I thought it would be a good idea for spies to actually speak the languages of the people <laughs> yeah. they're spying and, on. And that was and coming out true. of the 80s. Yeah, exactly. That was coming right out of the eighties and exactly what you're saying. And you know, that was, um, I think we kind of, did you see that after two, would people say who were there prior 2001, uh, once we got that awful wake-up call, it was like, yeah, we should do that. We should have... I think there was definitely a, a, an awareness right away that we should do that. Doing it is, of course, always a more complicated matter, because it's sort of on the, also turning a battleship around. But there, from a security perspective, there were all of these concerns around, you know, 
after 9-11 in the kind of haze of everything, yes, we need these applicants, but how do we screen? Right. People that speak Arabic right. uh, may be suspect exactly. uh, you know, for six months of this you know, you know, background. Right. And so I think there were challenges there that that held back the organization enormously. Yeah. Um, and those, those, even in the time that I was there, were, were certainly um, overcome. And I think the younger generation of officers, the, those that have most excelled, I think, have come from all of these diverse backgrounds. And women have done so well there in the years since I've left, you know, now not just the director, but all of the the leaders of the directorates beneath her are all women for mm-hmm. the first time in CIA history, which is so exciting as a kind of reflection of the agency's role in peacemaking going forward and maybe moving away from that kind of diversion post 9-11 where they moved more into the paramilitary right. world rather than focusing on their core competence, which is human, human intelligence. intelligence. Human intelligence. I was, uh, I'm struck again, I mean, w- 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 another movie example, but uh, Zero, Dark, Zero Dark 30 in which the Maya character is basically the hero and, and gets the job done here. Um, that kind of resistance, though, I have to think that in the first five, ten, just knowing human nature, especially old boys networks and things like that, that you're going to get a lot of resistance from well, just a girl or you've only been doing this for two years or, you know, you're not in the field in the same way. So do, I definitely experienced that like in that? the early days, for sure. And mm-hmm. some of it I put in the book, some of it I left out because it was crude and crass and, and ultimately irrelevant because the, the evolution really has begun there and I, and I think not just begun but but really taken off. I mean we've seen not just that change in leadership but I think even by the time that I left, which is a decade ago now, more and more of the women that were excelling in the field, not just in management, um, more and more of those officers were women. So yeah you talk about the Hollywood depictions and then we, then you go from the Hollywood depictions of um, you know and then of the, the old timey type spies. And then you get a show like, say, Homeland, where it's just like, okay, you've got a, a, a strong female character, but then they compromise her. They compromise her, and mentally ill, and 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 morally suspect too, because right. she's sleeping with her subjects and everything. And right. it's just which like, is one of the one of the sort of themes in in Hollywood that drives me crazy. You not only whether you're a man or a woman are forbidden from having any relationship with not just a source but any foreign national. But in certain circumstances, you can not only be fired, but you can be prosecuted criminally. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So the idea that, you know, women who are good at this work are good for honey pots. Exactly. You got James Bond, I guess. You know, so, but, but then you get Homeland to start with that. There's going to be a Black Widow movie. Uh, so in the Marvel universe, which is the biggest yeah, you know, you money know, you making thing, and that's going to be but like the, that, too. The, the implication also is that, especially in, you know, everything from burn notice on television to uh, all the way across the, the thing, is that you sort of have to have a moral screw loose to work in the end. You have to get dirty. You know, you have to have this sort of the, uh, the, It's so, so frustrating it. because, you know, entertainment can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. You know, we, we hit what we look at is what they say in the defensive driving course, and it applies to this as well, like which that. is this idea that, um, you know, we recruit the very archetypes that see themselves on the screen and then therefore think that this is their calling. And what I often say to people is those that are least likely to find personal happiness doing this kind of work are exactly the ones that we need. You know, right. not people who are signing up because it looks cool or because they're going to get off on the power trip. Or It's the same as what we need in our police force and others, where yeah. it's actually Actually, the the loneliness, the responsibility, the moral weight on your shoulders, making it a really tough 
year, you know, decade, whatever, however many years your service is of your life, that's the service part of service, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you can go on and have a different phase in your life. But anyone who kind of grows up thinking like that would be cool you know, maybe it's actually not the right role for them. That was me, but I outgrew it. By the time I was in (laughs) college, you know, it was sort of like, you know, I actually was interested in the foreign service, but even that was sort of like, I don't think I have, I don't think I have the right uh, lineup for this. And kudos to to people that do, you know, I mean, this is service in a different way than the military is, but it's in a sense almost more immersive in in some ways, not to create any um, cross field. uh, No, and there's so much cooperation between the two communities. That's actually one of the, one of the most wonderful things about serving in either, I think, is the kind of brother and sisterhood that mm-hmm. is shared between them. All right. So the book is called Life Undercover. And uh, where can they find more information about you? Um, well, uh, AmarillusFox.com, um, Instagram and Twitter. I'm not always the most diligent on socials. Um, it's, it's kind of it's a, a, new, a, new, a new, new world, world a new realm for me. You're um, not checking into yeah. <laughs> a particular restaurant. Um, extremely online. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I have, I have a few exciting projects, um, coming out, but I, I have to wait to, to share them. But yep. there are some documentary series mm-hmm. um, that I will come back and chat to you about because they will be right up your alley awesome. in the next few months. That's Sounds excellent. Um, the book is called Life Undercover, Coming of Age in the CIA. That's Amaryllis Fox. And also I did uh, read that Vogue article uh, with the excerpt of it. You can check that out immediately, but buy this uh, on Penguin Books or uh, Amazon or at or your local bookshop. Uh, uh, your yes, book take shop. your physical self to the physical bookstore. Get down to so, uh, yeah, we'll right. include all the details in our informational sections, sections and um, check it out. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, thanks so much for inviting us. me, guys. Fun.